0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly well is there an appetite for an ontario election a toronto star poll says no sabrina nancy from queens park today joins us to discuss that after a weekend of mixed information on donald trump's status and his limo ride around the hospital probably going to be released later on today we'll give you the details on what's happening there the old normal is gone but ontarians seem reluctant to follow the new covid guidelines why not and yesterday saw Sisters in Spirit vigils being held for missing and murdered Indigenous women. The ONWA has released a report outlining some solutions to those problems, and we'll deal with the executive director of that organization. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Fun and games at Queen's Park. And there is a, a motion that's going to be uh, debated today, actually being put forth by the Liberals by uh, Mitzi Hunter, former cabinet minister in the Wynn government, uh, that will guarantee that the Ford government will not call an early election. We're about 20 months away from the next scheduled provincial election. But uh, they've done some polling about this, the Toronto Star and others have done some polling about this, as to whether or not there is an appetite for an Ontario election, given as how Saskatchewan and B.C. are heading to the polls. New Brunswick just had one. Are we ready? Do we want another provincial election here in Ontario? I want to bring Sabrina Nanji into the conversation Queen's Park today, uh, who uh, has a pretty good idea of the pulse of what's going on with the members uh, in the Ontario Legislature. Sabrina, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill.
0: This is kind of an unusual motion by Mitzi Hunter, isn't it?
1: yeah i'm actually watching uh the debate just kicked off moments ago uh in the house here at queens park uh that's Mitzi hunter's motion as you mentioned um so i I should say that motions are are non-binding in any sense Mm so even if if this did pass and we can get into the motion itself in a second uh there's no obligation on the government to actually you know do what it says in this case um and uh uh there there is a symbolic value though to to a motion so i think that's maybe what the liberals are thinking that you know if their motion doesn't pass or you know the pcs vote a certain way on this motion that if there is a, a snap election which the liberals seem to all but convinced of right now of um, that that it might be a bad look for the pcs so so just to set the stage here that the motion is is not binding by any means but essentially what it does is it asks the government um, to commit to the next election date, which is set out in the law, uh, the, th- the first Thursday in June 2022. Uh, so that- that'll be June 2nd. Um, but uh, I think Mitzi Hunter's trying to call Premier Doug Ford's bluff a little bit with her motion today. Uh, the Premier has said repeatedly, um, and just a couple of days ago, he pledged to, uh, you know, stick to the next uh, 2022 date he said that 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 will be the next election um uh i i you know that that's what the premier saying now i think um you know it's not impossible that that could change that things could change um i i need to double check all the the technicalities of it but i believe it's pretty as pretty simple as just asking the uh, lieutenant governor to to um to to set that process uh going forward i'm not uh and you know potentially might need like a little tweak to the law that's in place now but um i am not really sure how the pcs will vote we'll find out in a couple of hours i believe um which way the pcs are going but like i said it's a non-binding motion so even if the conservatives did vote in favor of this um you know, sort of reaffirming what the premier has already said, there's really nothing stopping them um, from calling a snap election, which uh, I will say, you know, it is one thing that that we have, uh, like those rumors are floating around. The liberals are obviously um, uh, uh, almost convinced that 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 could happen. I think um, for us, there have been a couple of signs. um, And and the premier says, you know, I'll just preface what I'm about to say. The premier says that it's all just politics, but there are some little... Signs, um, that at least had some of us reporters paying more attention. For instance, the, the PCs they nominated or renominated, I should say, uh, their 70. 70 some odd uh, incumbent sitting MVPs for the next election. So they're basically locked in and are planning to fly the PC banner during the next vote, whenever that may be. Um, I will say, interestingly, the premier was one who was not uh, renominated in Etobicoke Center, but he's given every indication that, that he will be running again. Um, but the liberals are their argument here and with this motion says that. The, it, it, the, during a pandemic, this is not a time for a snap election. You know, there are ongoing emergency orders. The state of emergency may have expired, but we still have emergency level orders in place. You had mentioned some of the restrictions that's connected to, uh, you know, the emergency level powers right now. The government does have a majority. So basically, you know, what they their agenda, they can put it forward pretty easily without, uh, you know, much trouble from the opposition uh, and we're ha- we're dealing with, you know, a, a social and, and economic crisis uh, as, as the liberal motion reads, that's how they're putting it. And uh, it, it seems like voters are, uh, are in agreement. Uh, there was a poll done by campaign research for the Toronto star uh, saying that 51% uh, of, of people surveyed, they, they aren't feeling this a snap election anytime soon. Um, they, 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 uh, think that people, the leaders should, you know, forget about this and not talk about this and, and deal with, with the pandemic at hand. That has been, you know, the premier's line. He has been saying that a lot. But like I said, they, they are renominating their, they, they have already renominated their candidates. And for the, uh, 52 other MPPs that, uh, or, or MPP seats, I should say, that, uh, are not held by PCs right now, the, the PC party says that they want to have candidates in those slots. By the end of February uh, next spring, which so um, when you see something like that, fodder for the rumors that we're hearing of a June 2021 election. But, um, yeah, I I don't think people are really interested in that that sort of talk at Queen's Park this week
0: so you hear that and the the nominations are interesting uh, mm. and the fact that they seem to be on a fundraising binge now too uh very actively yeah, seeking right. funds uh, so you play that in and then there's the politics of it too though sabrina uh you know we we're going into the second wave of covid we know that uh, if it's anywhere near as bad as the first wave there's going to be an economic downturn uh, and we don't know how deep that's going to be or how inf- you know how it's going to infect the, our economy or how long-lasting it's going to be. So you've got to think that there's at least somebody, uh, if not the premier, but somebody in his inner circle is saying, you know, uh, you don't want to wear a- another recession. You know, that, that's that's as much as, you know, you've been considered to be doing a good job here. If the economy tanks again here in Ontario, it's usually the government of the day that wears that. So I'm sure that they're thinking about that. If not, It may not be driving their decision right now, but it's certainly a factor in the discussion, I would think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that can also be played um both ways a little bit. I think right now the premier is very popular. Uh he he's doing uh you know the best he's done as premier in the polls right now. So some are thinking that he could capitalize on that. And yes, you know, uh the economic uh turmoil from the pandemic could could be long lasting and especially right around twenty twenty two. But um I I'm thinking and, and hearing, you know, from some conservatives that the way the, the PC party could um, spin this or how they could play it, and I think, you know, make an election easy for the electorate to swallow, I guess, they, they could say something like, uh, you know, our, our mandate has been completely thrown off by the pandemic. Uh, the premier has already said, you know, he, he's not going to be able to balance the budget, uh, by the timelines that they had set out. The pandemic basically threw everything off course and, and they could go to the voters, even with their majority, you know, staring down this economic crisis and, and be frank and say, we need another mandate from, from the public now. Um, things have changed. You know, here's our new, platform here's how we're going to get the economy back together I think um, certainly they don't want to wear you know any any economic um, any economic recession but I think the because you know the premier is also doing popular I think the public is very forgiving right now and looking at things in terms of the pandemic so I think that uh, you know even though the polls might suggest now that the public isn't really keen on on an early election I think that, the, the premier and the PCs could could play it in a way and and they do seem to have to, uh, you know, even even do a lot of uh, rejigging to their own mandate. So I think, you know, putting that to the voters, it, it's something that, uh, you know, wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, they definitely don't want to wear any um, any of this economic, any of this economic turmoil, that the turmoil that the province is facing. And, you know, especially for a, a Tory government.
0: It has happened in the past, though, historically. Uh, I mean, Jean Cretchen did this a couple of times when he was Prime Minister, uh, but that was essentially because right now the, the, the Conservatives, the, the, well, there was the, the Reform Party and the Alliance Party and, the, and, of course, then the Conservative Party itself were in disarray, and he figured, okay, these are easy pickings. and He actually won majorities in both of them, but I guess the one that I've, everyone refers to historically is David Peterson in Ontario, uh, back in the late 1990s, that decided to call an election early, uh, well before his mandate was up, and uh, it didn't go well for them. I mean, uh, they were defeated soundly. Bob Ray and the NDP, of course, were elected to be the government of the day. So uh, there's no history here to say that this is a, a slam dunk no matter which way you go.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, even Ontario, we're looking to other provinces too. You had mentioned um, New Brunswick and, and BC is going to the polls early. So I think here in Ontario, uh, you know, we're really paying attention uh, to, to how everything's playing out in these other provinces
0: as well. I know in the motion, I know you've got the wording in front of you there, Mincy Hunter's motion, it says it would be reckless and unnecessary to call an election prior to the legislative date. Uh, there may be some merit to that line whether or not that means they want to do this or not. but uh, this is a different time and place, obviously, Sabrina, because of the the pandemic. Uh, you know, we've heard in the even in the provinces, as you mentioned, where there are elections or or New Brunswick, where they just had one. Uh, voters are nervous. They don't like lining up to go to polling stations. There's a, it's the social distancing aspect and everything else. Uh- they may well uh, get a little ticked off with any government that tries to call an election right in the middle of a second wave of a pandemic. Uh, I, I, I I, just don't see it happening for for all the reasons that you've stated. Uh, I, I know that any premier who is as popular as Ford is right now wants to capitalize on that. But uh, you also have to, uh, I guess, at some point evaluate the opposition and said, is there a real threat there? And it, what, I, I, Do you get the sense that they're thinking that way?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's the other thing, you know, uh, an election in a pandemic is a huge undertaking. I'm sure elections on, I mean, I'm sure elections Ontario would be happy to run an election at any time, but I, am sure they, they think that task would be daunting, um, right now. And, 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 you know, the, the province does ha- seem to have a lot of other, Urgent things too, and I'm not sure if uh, you know. For instance, the opposition could could talk about lines at, at assessment centers that the PCs are dealing with now, and and sort of uh, you know project that onto lines at at uh, the polling stations, that type of thing. I, I don't. I think people would probably be a little nervous about uh, you know going to the polls, but I also think that um, you know there there has been. There, there could like there could be uh it could be done i think like it, it could be done if if it needed to but certainly it would require a lot of planning um and uh a lot of uh public awareness and that sort of thing i think um Probably the feeling that most people have is that they don't want to go to the polls until, you know, COVID's not really around or there's a, a widely available vaccine. Um, certainly the opposition is definitely saying that, you know, uh, given what we're seeing, you know, day to day at assessment centers, you know, with the testing backlogs as cases are soaring, uh, they they think that it's just a very bad move
0: to have an election now having said all that <laughs> because there's always a, 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 a on the other hand when you're dealing with politics isn't there uh, the, the rumor is that if they were thinking of doing this as you mentioned it might be february of next year uh instead instead of 2022 uh, so about a year and a half earlier that would make sense from a timing standpoint, because that's usually when governments introduce budgets. Uh, they'll also have a fairly good handle on whether or not the second wave is going to be disastrous again. So the timing could be right then. So, uh, you know, in as much as it doesn't make any sense, and you've laid out a whole long list of reasons, very valid reasons, Sabrina, why they shouldn't, you just don't know, do you?
1: That. <laughs> that's exactly it Yeah, that's exactly it um i think you know from a reporter's perspective uh it would be exciting and very hectic to cover an election in this time um but i i guess yeah i can't really say much more than we'll we'll see how it goes uh i think the the public you know in politics people have memories like goldfish right like uh <laughs> next spring is is a long ways out um I'm, I think we're all hoping that you know, COVID is a bit more under control we have a better handle on things and, and maybe uh, maybe you know that's the time for the pcs to reevaluate and um, and head to the polls but I think that you know certainly they are setting the stage for that possibility whether the election is you know next spring or in 2022 as scheduled uh, you know they are renominating candidates they're they're, the big blue fundraising machine is back into high gear after you know a, a bit of a pause during the pandemic um, they're sending out fundraising email blasts uh, almost every week you know uh, even a couple times a week so I think that they're they're definitely gearing up for it whether or not it will happen I think remains to be seen but they are certainly preparing for it and uh, it seems the li- the liberals are are as well and and the liberals you know they They have the most to gain right now. They only have eight seats. You know, we're elected with seven. So they've been nominating their candidates at lightning speed um, just because they have the most to they have the most ground to make up. Um, And, you know, even the polls are suggesting that the liberals are very competitive, um, you know, just even almost as competitive as the PC. So I think uh, we're also starting to see, you know, the NDP kick, kick their fundraising up a little bit as well. And, and they're sort of framing it as we've, we've got to beat the conservatives type of thing. It's it's also interesting to see what the parties are fundraising off of. Uh, the PCs have been fundraising off of, you know, the, the pan- pandemic response and pumping up government policies and that sort of thing. So uh, even, I guess, no matter when the election happens, we are starting to see how uh, it will be framed from the parties now, which is really interesting.
0: Well, uh, it's a... Uh as clear as mud, I guess, as everything else is in politics these days, and and once again, like everything else, COVID is going to be a determining factor in what's going to happen or not going to happen. I guess as time goes on, but as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the debate has already begun, so I'll let you get back into work. Uh, always a yeah, pleasure. I should actually.
1: I just want to add really quickly that yeah. uh, the House, the PC House Leader Paul Calandra, just said during the debate that uh, the PCs will be supporting the motion, and he basically sees it as a vote of confidence in the current government. So, um, yeah, I guess that's that's that.
0: Well, they've got their talking points already, don't they? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thanks a lot for the time, Sabrina. Always a pleasure.
1: Thanks so much. Have a good day, Bill.
0: You too. Sabrina and Angie, of course, Queens Park Today, who is tracking uh, the debate that's going on at uh, Queens Park right now. So uh, if that motion passes, there will not be an election until June of 2022. Uh, which is not a bad idea because we really don't need all, that on top of all the other stuff that we're dealing with you're listening
2: to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml
0: u.s president donald trump spent the weekend in hospital while uh, battling covid 19 after his diagnosis of course late last week after a weekend of mixed information and as a matter of fact in many places at times conflicting information about his status and what kind of treatment he was getting lo and behold yesterday afternoon uh A limo ride to the hospital around the hospital really for his supporters and a video that he released in which he told the american public that he's learned what he needs to learn about covid
3: it's been a very interesting journey i learned a lot about covid i learned it by really going to school this is the real school this isn't the let's read the book school
0: Uh, which is going to be a little frightening because uh, Trump has always maintained that he knew more about COVID than anybody else anyway. So I guess he's even more enlightened than he was before. Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, is outside Walter Reed Hospital right now. Uh, uh, So we apologize for any street noise because I know there's a lot of people around there. Uh, Reggie, on a very busy morning, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it.
2: Good morning, and apologies as well for a muffled mask sound, given that we're outside
0: right now. Good. uh, We need to take precautions. That's great. I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, Listen, I was watching your coverage on Global National and listening to your stuff over the last uh, four or five days about this stuff, Reggie. It's got to be awfully difficult. I mean, it it seems that you get one message from one spokesperson, another from another, and uh, how do you make any sense of any of this?
2: Well, look, this has been an incredibly difficult time to report on the health of the president, given the fact that there's been conflicting messaging from his own physician's team from inside the White House uh, and from the president himself, who really has tried to take uh, this into his own hands and tried to create uh, his own kind of coverage and care plan that's going out to the public. It's making the administration less transparent. It's making his medical team less transparent. And it's putting credibility on the line.
0: Well, and therein lies the problem. It just seemed, and, and I think it probably started, well, first of all, with the the, the muddled message we got about Friday, about uh, his condition at the time. Uh, we're not even quite sure when he was actually diagnosed, are we? I, mean, I heard mixed messages that it was actually Wednesday, some say Thursday. And nonetheless, he went to a fundraiser Thursday while he was not feeling well, and, and there's a lot of questions being raised about that.
2: Absolutely. Look, the White House is not being transparent about not only when the president actually tested positive. We know that there was a test that was administered either before or after New Jersey on Thursday. A second test was then administered after that with a confirmation on Friday morning. But the White House is not being transparent when it comes to when his last negative test was. They won't say whether it was on Wednesday, whether it was before the debate on Tuesday, or if he tested negative before that Rose Garden event last Saturday. So this does pose questions as to whether the president uh, has potentially been sick for longer than what we know and how far back that contract tracing is going to have to go.
0: Well, we also had one report over the weekend that suggested that the White House would not confirm that he actually got a test before the debate last week. Uh, so, it was, you know, the, the, the speculation, I guess, is just running rampant these days. But we're not even sure about the current status, are we? I mean, you know, even on Saturday morning, uh, you know, when the doctors came out on the front steps of the hospital there and gave a very rosy picture of he's fine, he's not on oxygen now. But it, it, they said that, but they would not confirm that he was on oxygen before. Uh, and then Mark Meadows, the the, 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 the Chief of Staff of the White House and Trump's Chief of Staff came out with a totally conflicting message literally 30 seconds later.
2: Not only did he come out with a conflicting message 30 seconds later, he went on background to say that and didn't put his name on it. And it only became clear that it was uh, Chief of Staff that said those words because the pool cameras were running and they caught him saying that, again, putting questions over the, uh, trans, uh, the, the transparency from this administration. Uh, but back to what the physicians had said, we didn't know if it was oxygen. We didn't know when the oxygen was administered. The fact that we are now learning only on Sunday that the president is being given dexamethasone, which is a steroid for this, and only given to the most critically ill with COVID-19, also raises questions to the severity of the president's symptoms and why he partook in that photo op last night
0: yeah i I saw the same report well it was your report about the severity of the medication uh and and that leads to another set of speculation are they doing that just because he's the president and they want to fast track and give him everything possible or is he in a dire uh, medical circumstance right now still no clarity on that
2: no clarity on that but independent medical experts who are not working on the president's team say anyone who's given dexamethasone is oftentimes critically ill and if you're just uh dealing with kind of less severe symptoms of COVID-19, dexamethasone could actually have adverse side effects on a person. It's also worth pointing out the medical community says Donald Trump is likely the only person in the world receiving a trio combination of dexamethasone, remdesivir, and that antibody uh, uh, treatment from Regeneron last week, uh, which does open the door to the possibility that President Trump's symptoms are much more worse than what's being let on, and they're simply trying to keep up
0: appearances. So why the car trip yesterday, Reggie? What's the story? What are you hearing?
2: Well, look, this is a president who has a a, a vanity complex. He does not want to appear weak. He does not want to appear that he's not in control. And this is a messenger-in-chief who has actively worked for the last four years to control the message that comes out of the White House. If the president is in a car, he does not appear to be as sick. Even if he is sick, Possibly infecting those Secret Service members, it is simply to keep up appearances with the base.
0: Yet, we're told, and you're reporting from yesterday that, uh, and and again, I guess you're getting the quotes from some of the White House staff or some of the folks that that the car trip was was cleared by the doctors, uh, which sounds incongruous, really, because just about every other doctor that's commented on this on every other network has said this was a stupid thing to do.
2: Absolutely, considering that one of the doctors who came out uh, with a negative tone of what the president did with that photo op, which we should say is very on point for this president. It's what he did during the park clearing, during the protest in Washington to go to that photo op at St. John's Church with the Bible. This is uh, true to his style. But doctors that work inside Walter Reed came out publicly and said that that was a reckless move that endangered the lives of people that were surrounding the president. And there are people outside of Walter Reed, both from within the medical community and the general population, that say it was an affront to the families who have lost more than two or where where 210,000 Americans have died, where many of those families were not actually able to say a final goodbye or had to do it on FaceTime. And the president got out of his hospital room and went into a vehicle.
0: Well, I know one of the other areas for criticism right now is being leveled by the Secret Service. A number of agents and former agents uh, have said that, you know, he's putting those lives at risk. And even if you look at the video of the trip, uh, uh, you can see there's a Secret Service agent uh, sitting in the front seat. And, of course, there's a driver, too. And they've got the medical gowns on and they've got the masking and everything else, rather stoic look. And I, I don't know, in the two or three seconds we saw them, they certainly had that look like, I really don't want to be here today.
2: Well, and look, there are there are members of the Trump base and people who are from the Republican Party saying, look, the Secret Service signs up for a job to take a bullet from the president. But as some Secret Service members have also been saying, they don't line up to take an actual bullet from the president and put their lives on the line solely because of reckless behavior from a president of the United States who needs to ensure that he is being seen and not described. Because the president was reported to be furious with White House staff, for the way that they were describing the president's condition over the weekend, which is why we've seen him on video, which is why we've seen photos come out and which is why we saw that photo op. Yet
0: yeah, there's a story going around today, Reggie, and you've been reporting on this already, that he may actually be discharged today. Uh, is there not supposed to be a 14 day quarantine for people that are testing positive like this? And is it really safe for him to go back to the White House where there already seems to be growing numbers of, of COVID cases there?
2: It's a 14-day isolation that is supposed to take place for somebody who is COVID-positive. If the president leaves today, that'll have put him in hospital for three days, not in isolation any longer than four days, but realistically not in isolation longer than one day for the amount of people that he's been kind of hanging around with and seeing well inside the hospital. It opens questions as to whether or not there's a potential here that other people in the White House could get sick. If other people in the hospital are going to get sick, it really is a public relations crisis for this administration.
0: We should also mention. I know you've been talking about this in your reporting. Uh, you know, the, the, the presidential area there at Walter Reed Hospital is not just a, a little hotel or hospital room. Uh, they have the entire floor there. And there, are, you know, there are boardrooms, there are offices, uh, all sorts of other things. It's not as if he couldn't do his job, such as it is, from that facility, while he's in quarantine.
2: Exactly. Look, this is the president who has opted to not give uh, uh, a transfer of power over to Mike Pence, so that continuity of government solely can continue under the president. But you're right, he does have the ability to carry on work inside the hospital, but there are people who are with the president saying the president is bored. He's frustrated. He wants to get out of this hospital room. And again, it comes from a a, a mirror of Bain where the president is simply concerned about how he looks in the public eye.
0: We know that Mike Pence has already uh, been tested, and he's negative on this. Bill Barr, I guess, got tested three times ever since this diagnosis. Uh, but I guess the, the, t- the takeaway from this, Reggie, is we don't know how far this is going to go because of the incubation period. Uh, there could be others who attended uh, the, the, the ceremonies in, uh, at the White House over the last couple of days that may yet to be testing positive that may actually turn out to be positive.
2: Well, and given the fact that the testing kits that the White House have used have come under criticism for providing more false negatives than are normally uh, expected with these kinds of tests, it does mean that these people, even like Mark Meadows, who says that they've tested negative, or the vice president, or the attorney general, that they could potentially test negative in the next couple of days. The attorney general has said yesterday he's negative, he'll quarantine for a few days, but he's expected back at work by Wednesday.
0: Uh, Boy, this changes by the minute. Uh, Great reporting over the last four or five days, especially on this, Reggie. Thank you so much. Uh, Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, of course, a uh, global news uh, correspondent and producer, who is right outside uh, Walter Reed Hospital, uh, just outside of Washington, of course, uh, watching the activity around uh, D- U.S. President Donald Trump. And as I say, we seem to be getting different messages and uh, different concepts about what's actually happening and why it's happening almost on an hourly basis. But as Reggie pointed out during his reporting, what else is new? That seems to be the hallmark of the uh, the Trump presidency, doesn't it? Well, back home here in Ontario, uh, we've got some concerns of our own. We know that last week, of course, Premier Doug Ford uh, decided that uh, he was going to uh, increase some of the restrictions on what he called the hot areas of the province with uh, an, an exceptional number of new cases of COVID, uh, that being the GTA, of course, and Peel region and Ottawa. Uh, Hamilton's not included in that. London is not included in that. Having said that, though, I know that both medical offices of health, uh, Chris Mackey in, uh, in Middlesex, London, and, of course, had Dr. Rich- Richardson here, have expressed some concern about the growing number of cases, which raises the question, uh, are we willing to play ball here? i think a lot of us bought into this in the initial stages of covid and said okay yeah we'll do the thing we'll do the hand sanitizing and we'll do the social distancing and uh, and you know we'll do what we can and and it seemed to pay off i mean we kept the numbers down a lot further than a lot of other jurisdictions but we have seemingly dropped the ball here are we reluctant to follow the covid-19 instructions anymore with the normal not being in sight for the near future Let's bring uh, Alison Thompson into the conversation. Allison is an Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a Professor of Public Health Sciences at the uh, dana Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Professor, as always, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us here today. My pleasure. I'm, I'm concerned about this. I assume with the the, the, the the tracking you've been doing over the last six or eight months especially, uh, that there seems to be almost a, a laissez fair attitude with a lot of people here in Ontario to say, look, at you know, we're over the worst of this stuff. Uh, I, this second wave thing... You know, I'm, I'm still not going to do this. And, uh, it's it's worrisome when you see the sorts of things that are going on and the attitude that seems to be happening.
3: It is, and um, I think you know, there's lots of lots of reasons for it, um, and and I think people are are having a hard time staying in that sort of emergency preparedness mode. Uh, I think it's it's exhausting. And for a lot of people, their children are back at school and it kind of feels like we're back to normal in a lot of ways and restaurants are still open. Um, But I think what we're seeing is is there are are consequences to us opening back up like that and, and getting sort of complacent about public health measures
0: i'm glad you brought that element up because that's the one i hear more often than not from people that have been complaining about this over the last year four days and i get emails about this all the time on the program and, and it's that what they call a mixed messaging uh... in other words we're being told by dr williams of course last week and even dr tam uh, the the canadian medical officer I of health the national medical officer of health, uh... for instance the upcoming weekend thanksgiving weekend uh... that uh... You know, no bubbles, just the people that live in your house, those are the ones you hang out with. Don't try to expand that because we want to stop the spread. Yet at the same time, uh, that person that just says, okay, Grandma and Grandpa, you're not coming over for dinner this year for Thanksgiving, but you can go to a bar and and, and associate with somebody that you've never met before as long as you're social distancing. And they they see, they see say that, that and say, how come the double standard? What's going on here?
3: Absolutely, and I think I think that there is a real problem with the messaging that's happening right now, uh, particularly in Ontario. We don't have a Bonnie Henry who's able to instill a lot of um, feelings of trust, and there's a lot of confusion. You know, you know, if our kids are back at school, why are we not able to do this or that? And I I think. It's partly because the logic of it is not clear, Um, and I'm not sure that there is a logic a lot of the time. Um, And we're asking the public to take on the responsibility once again for managing this outbreak when, you know, we're still waiting days for test results. They've stopped contact tracing in the community, um, focusing very narrowly on particular indicators um, for the outbreak, like the R value, the reproductive value of the virus, rather than some of the other ones maybe we should be paying attention to that would inform a much more strategic use of testing and contact tracing. So, you know, these, these sort of failures to have a comprehensive public health strategy based on proven theories, um, is meaning that people have to pick up the slack because we don't know what we're doing and there are these backlogs. And so people are starting to resent that and you really can't blame them.
0: No, I don't, and and because, again, I, I can understand the confusion. And, and you talked about the testing, and there's there's another, I think, incongruity there. You know, they basically said the the, the, the walk-up testing is, is pretty much over now. You have to make an appointment to that, which sounds on, on on one level like they're not that concerned about it as much anymore. Uh, and people are saying, well, wait a second, how can you tell us this is really serious? You're not going to allow us to just walk up. We have to make an appointment and wait uh, to do this. It, it seems rather strange as far as, as, as the, the magnitude of what we're anticipating. I, by the way, I should mention, uh, you mentioned, you referenced Dr. Henry, Bonnie Henry. Uh, for those who may think I know that name, she is the British Columbia Medical Officer of Health, uh, but a transplanted Ontarian. I mean, she was here and I guess uh, really uh, was a leader in the battle against SARS a few years ago, wasn't she?
3: Yeah, and we had, we had Sheila Baver during SARS in, in Ontario who was a fantastic um, communicator around these issues and really in, engendered a lot of... of In the way that she communicated, and we we are really missing that in Ontario. Um, You know, it's it's not something we train our public health professionals to do very well. Um, And you know, David Williams seems to really struggle with that public-facing role. Um, You know, I'm not going to comment on you know whether he's competent or not because it's almost irrelevant. Uh, It's whether or not he's a good communicator, and I think we don't hear from him often enough. and and a lot of the time, it is not enough information to provide a rationale for complying with public health measures that he provides. So, you know, around testing, while it, there may be very good reasons for limiting testing um, in a population that's largely I- asymptomatic, but, um, you know, we're not hearing about that. So, you know, whereas before we could just, anyone could get a test, um, that was actually not the smartest way to go about it, Um mm-hmm. If you look at it from a public health point of view, uh, and it's not—it's not something you want to be doing widely in a population where there isn't a lot of virus circulating, because you're going to get a ton of false positives, um, which has implications for people as well. You know, they have to to quarantine for two weeks. So we, we really want a, a better testing strategy that is aimed at finding the people who are spreading the virus and uh, making sure that. Um, people who may be these sort of super spreader individuals, not for, it's just, it just they may be people who have a higher viral load or whatever the reason is, you know, th- those are the people we need to be contact tracing for. And that often requires doing the contact tracing backwards when someone gets uh, infected. So we look rather than finding out who this person had been in contact with since they were diagnosed. You want to know who infected them. And so that's a totally different strategy than we've been seeing in Ontario. Um, so all of this is extremely confusing um, for, for people in the public. And, you know, if we don't understand why we're being asked to do something, we're not going to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to, and your point's well taken. Uh, you know, there have been other jurisdictions, too, where there, there seems to be a, 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 an unease with the fact that, hey, we're hearing from the politicians. Why aren't we hearing from the medical experts on a daily mm-hmm. basis? And that doesn't seem to be happening here either. Uh, Allison, mm-hmm. always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Associate Professor Alison Thompson, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday saw Sisters in Spirit vigils being held right across the country in various cities uh, for missing and murdered Indigenous women. Uh, and uh, the Ontario Native Women's Association, of course, has uh, released a report which outlines some solutions to end systemic violence against women. Joining us to talk about this is Cora McGuire-Sayed, who is uh, Executive Director of of the Ontario Native Women's Association. Uh, Cora, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today.
4: Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: From a timing standpoint, we're, I guess, uh, about a year out now from uh, the release of the final report uh, on this uh, very important issue. In, in the subsequent year, they, they, we're talking about the uh, National inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, have we moved the ART-6 at all, Cora? Have we made any progress?
4: Well, I guess, you know, for for us, it's been decades of work. Um, I know it's been uh, relatively newer at the the national front, Um, you know, like only been a year after the inquiry, and we were really hoping that the inquiry was going to, um, you know, continue to move forward with, uh, you know, addressing solutions and um, being able to get, um, you know, real change on the ground to address Indigenous women's safety across our communities, and we understand that during the pandemic, that the report was or the, the action plan is going to be delayed. But we did have an expectation that Indigenous women would be a priority in investments uh, here in the province and across Canada, because we know that uh, they're facing a crisis before the pandemic, and the pandemic is now um, impounded uh, ongoing continued violence. And so, you know, we're we're con- continuing to push and advocate for movement. Uh, that's why we've spent um, the past six months. Uh, writing this report, um, honestly, uh, taken away from our family time to get this done, uh, we made it a priority for ourselves. And so now we need uh, both the federal and provincial, uh, the both the federal and provincial governments, to take this report and implement it, action it, uh, make it alive. Not just a report that's going to sit on a shelf.
0: Your, your point's well taken, by the way, because we've seen studies that have indicated uh, an increase in, for instance, domestic violence uh, during the COVID-19, the pandemic, the shutdown especially, uh, and the isolation an awful lot of people are feeling, which only exacerbates a number of the things that were included in this report, didn't it?
4: Exactly. And then you also have to look at, um, you know, the, the Justice for Joyce movement that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, her story, um, you know, she's brought to the forefront of all of Canada. Uh proving what Indigenous women have been saying for decades and decades and generations, that the violence exists when you're just trying to access basic services. You know, her story um, and the violence she faced and uh, the death in, as a result of systemic racism was not an isolated incident. Uh, this is going on across Canada. It's going on across Ontario um, in the services that are both supposed to be there for your safety, health and well-being for every other Canadian The only thing Indigenous women want is that same level of service.
0: Which is not there right now. I know that there have been attempts made since the report came out uh, to establish some of these things, but I guess you're going to run into the same problems uh, that other uh, like services uh, for for the population are, are experiencing right now. That's lack of funding.
4: Exactly. You know, If we want to really, truly, honestly do reconciliation with Indigenous women as a community, we have to deconstruct the systems. Um, If we don't, we're never going to actually get to the root cause and make change and impact where um, it's safe for my daughter to walk down the road at nighttime if she wants to. You know, at the center of everything here, we're really talking about safety for Indigenous women. Um, You know, we have to really recognize that Indigenous women are not vulnerable. Uh, They are targeted. They're targeted for two factors, due to their race and their gender. And the more racialized you are, the more violence you're
0: going to experience, and the, the frustration you must have felt over the years, and probably are still feeling, Cora. I mean, we've had previous governments that didn't even see that the need for an inquiry like this, and you know, that this was not an indigenous problem, this was a, a crime problem. Uh, and, and you know, we, we seem to, I think, learned a little bit from that, and at least you know, the, the, the report did get done. And of course, uh, the inquiry, not without some controversy, of course, uh, did carry on. Uh, but with that in mind. Do you get the feeling, in all the work that you've done in this over the last little while, uh, that governments are willing to partner in this?
4: Yes, I think you know the yardstick is moving uh, slowly, like the turtle on our <laughs> on our report cover. <laughs> so, um, you know, we just want to continue to keep the movement going. We have to uh, continue to to break down um, this ideology that. You know, Indigenous women are not human. That's at the at the core root of everything we're talking about here. And we have to begin to recognize that we are a community. Uh, we are a nation. And we're stronger together. We're stronger when Indigenous women are safe um, in all of our communities. And a lot of people will ask us, like, why Indigenous women? Like, what about me? What about, you know, men? What about uh, boys and girls? You know, and it always comes down to that Indigenous women are the starting place. We're not saying that Indigenous women are the ending point, but we have to be able to look at the levels of violence um, for, uh, towards Indigenous women. Like, the stats are astounding um, across Canada in that Indigenous women are overrepresented in every single part of this work. Like, you know, the in the jails, like Indigenous women are highly overrepresented there. Um, the murder, the death rate, the missing rate... Uh, human trafficking, all of the rates and stats are telling us a very strong story and that we have to begin to do this work. And we have to start by beginning to heal uh, and beginning to ensure that Indigenous women are safe, and that our girls are safe. Because we know that uh, when mothers are safe and well and supported, they're going to raise healthy, well children. And when the community is healthy and well, we're all going to work together for a better community and you know the pandemic we have an opportunity right now as a community as a collective community to say we can do better and we will do better and we have an opportunity to really change our society for the better as a result and come out where Indigenous women are safe.
0: When, God forbid, something should happen, and they, as you say, the statistics indicate that, that it does happen with more frequency with, with indigenous women violence against them, how are they treated in the quote-unquote system? Are, are, are they respected? Are they, are they understood? Are they, are, they, are, are they listened to? Are they believed? They're not.
4: They're not believed. Um, you know, we've got so many stories of women coming to us to say that when they reach out for help and support, they're not believed. Uh, they're degraded their human rights are violated, uh, the level of racism and discrimination um, are apparent and across all systems. And so that's, that's the issue, like where these systems allow this type of behavior to happen. And when the systems can't even say that, yes, we have systemic racism in our system and let's start to unpack it and re- deconstruct what's going on here. And, you know, the denial um, is an issue and a problem. You have to admit that it's there to, to begin to do the work. Uh, and you have to believe women when they come into to your service. Uh, whether you are a paramedic, whether you're a health care provider, whether you're uh, police services, or whether you're like what, any of the systems that we're talking about here, um, they're all interconnected and they have to recognize that uh, there's barriers placed in those systems to discriminate against Indigenous women. And um, you know,
0: and we have to break those down. The uh, report talks about 13 recommendations, and I want to get to those in a couple of seconds if we could, Cora. Uh, yeah. But it also mentions the fact that, like so many other problems we have societally here, especially a violence against women and Indigenous women, uh, there are social factors, there are economic systems uh, that are at the root cause of this. Uh, and the old adage is, is you can't solve the problem until you solve the root problems that are, are you know that are creating this and the foundation for this. Uh, do governments get that that, that that there's a deeper element that has to be explored here and, and corrected?
4: I think they get it. It's a matter of like how do they how do we do it now? Um, and that's I think one of the the, the problems is when you've constructed this uh, massive system, being able to break it down, and completely deconstructed and doing things in a new way and being able to hear what indigenous women are seeing on the ground and get them supports immediately. You know, we just, they have to be braver in their actions and be able to not just stay within, um, you know, the current partners that they work with, but like who's missing from their partnerships, uh, who is doing this work on the ground in the communities. And, uh, you know, that's what we have to do. Like, if you look at a root cause, we need to begin by healing. Um, and the healing needs to begin at the individual level with Indigenous women. Uh, and then we can work outwards from to our larger community. Uh, they tend to start to say, like, okay, we have to do healing as a collective. And so they'll do investments into education awareness campaigns, and then a majority of the investment will then go to the larger Canadian society. And when we do that... We're never getting to where the investment needs to go with is, which is uh, with Indigenous, women who have been advocating, who've done marches and vigils um, to bring this to the attention. They can't be excluded from this process. They're, they're the core um, experts on this issue.
0: How do you? In a situation like this, you know when when you've run into the things that you've talked about here, the fact that, for instance, uh, you know oftentimes the authorities are are not paying attention. They don't give them the respect that's due to them. How do you empower uh, indigenous women to to overcome that, to 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 be strong or to try to be strong? you know I know the education and so many the other things come into this, but there 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 has to be an ad, attitudinal element to this as well.
4: Oh, well, definitely. Indigenous women have been carrying this work uh, for decades, um, completely unfunded. Um, you know, that's one of the parts that we've recognized and seen is that the majority of this work is done, you know, unpaid and unrecognized. So Indigenous women have been taking up their role and responsibility in getting this addressed uh, for generations. I remember going um, going out and marching with my grandparents from, you know, um, recognizing the discrimination that was happening within the Indian Act, you know, prior to 1985. And so this work has been going on within our communities and Indigenous women have been leading. Um, now we need to be able to hear and ensure that the investments where they go need to be going into where the 13 grandmother moon teachings that we've, uh, that we've written about here in order to address all of those root causes. You know, we can't have it patch work. We need it coordinated. Uh, we need to restore balance. We need to reclaim the role of Indigenous women as mothers. When you're looking at the connection to the residential school, and one part of the residential school that made a substantial impact is um, our ability to parent. And so we have to reclaim our, our parenting and be able to decolonize um, the, our parenting that has now taken over into like the child welfare system. And what everyone is referring to as the millennial scoop, and that ongoing system has to change as well.
0: There is a propensity with the government, and I'm sure you've seen this over the years, Court, to pass the buck, and we've seen this happen an awful lot of the time with indigenous issues. Oh, that's a federal responsibility. Go talk to them. No, that's a provincial responsibility, uh, as opposed to the coordinated effort that probably should be forthcoming in situations like that. How frustrating is it for you to try to deal with that bureaucracy?
4: Oh, the bureaucracy is yeah, that's pretty part that that's pretty uh, frustrating. Uh, we need to that's like, well, that's one of the systems we have to look at. Yeah. Um, how the bureaucracy and how these silos are impacting all of us, and they're impacting the bureaucracy as well. They just don't see it. Um, you have to do things in a new way. You have to not let you know fifty year old policies and procedures in your do- in your government or within your ministry, prevent you from doing the right thing. Uh, you know, we always go to um, looking at where the funding investments are because that really shows you what people's priorities are and what's important. And so that's where we're looking to both the provincial government and the federal government to, to back up that Indigenous women are a priority and that we're going to work on this together with a substantial investment in order to begin to do this work.
0: I because I, I, I mean I just get a sense of the frustration. I mean, you mentioned about revisions to the Indian Act from back when. I remember doing a show about that twenty years ago, I, more than twenty years ago. I guess it was now. uh... And the minister, by the way, didn't show up. Although they promised they would, the federal minister at the time, which is just adding to the frustration. So they seem to be talking the talk. uh... You know, yeah, we need to do this. We need to have reform, and 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 at various times, prime ministers and premiers have have met with indigenous leaders. Uh, and and there's a great photo op there, but you're right. It comes. It really comes down to, to financing, doesn't it?
4: Uh, it does. It shows that you know we. That's where the priorities um, that we see as a collective community as a, uh, are what's important to us. And so that's where we have to be. That's one of the starting bases, right? And you know, and there is policy changes that we can do that don't cost a lot of money. Uh, you know, it's policy change. Um, You know, we have to begin to look at what policies are changed based on what Indigenous are saying on the ground, you know, because they're the experts. They're the ones who are facing this racism, discrimination, violence every single day of their lives and just trying to access basic services from our society. Um, You know, that's, you know, where policy change needs to come into play. And so there is the part about investments, um, you know, even within the Indian Act right now, uh, you know, there's still changes that are needed today. Right. We still have, um, you know, last year we were able to uh, get uh, Bill S-3 passed, and now we have to get it implemented. Um, So the Indian Act is still in play. Um, It is still discriminating. Uh, There's residual discrimination that's been ongoing since you you talked about, from 85 right through till today. Um, You know, we have this issue is so complex that we have to be able to work together uh, regardless of jurisdiction, because the violence doesn't stay within jurisdiction.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, racism does not know provincial borders, does it? Uh, no. So much work to be done here. I, I want to congratulate you, Cora, and, and your or other volunteers on this particular situation for all the great work that you've done on this. Uh, where can people access the report?
4: Uh, you can go to our website at www.onwa.ca.
0: Okay. Uh, always a pleasure, Cor. Let's stay in touch, and uh, hopefully we'll have some good news next time we talk. Thanks for this today. Thank you. Cora McGuire, Surratt, of course, Executive Director for the Ontario Native Women's Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.